And this week marks 506 years since Martin Luther nailed a list of complaints and arguments on a door. 95 theses, they're sometimes called, on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. An event that was a catalyst for other events that followed, setting in motion what we call the Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, Luther nails these 95 theses to the door, aiming to renew and to strengthen the Roman Catholic Church, which had been riddled by many errors that brought distress not only to Luther, but to others who would follow in his stead, seeking, to, seeking for their, their church to be conformed to the Word of God and the true Gospel. We know the outcome of these events, that the renewal that Luther was hoping would happen within the church led instead to their rising opposition and their hostility against Martin Luther. But nevertheless, he would commit to the Word of God and the Gospel and proclaim, here I stand, I can do no other. The first of his 95 theses, and we're going to go through all 95. No, we're not. We're just going to look at one. This is number one, just number one. It says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's, that's the first. Heading out this wonderful list of rightful and valid complaints and arguments aiming for gospel renewal and love for truth is the proclamation that the Lord Jesus calling people to repent had in view with that command life lived, turning from sin, looking to Christ. One way to describe the Christian life is a repenting life. A believing life, a repenting life. That's what we are doing. That's what we are doing. We are following Christ, turning from sin. Following Christ, believing His words. Following Christ involves both looking to and turning from, according to the words of God. Repentance involves things like, first of all, realizing you've sinned against God. Why would you repent if you think you're not a sinner? Realizing that you have sinned, but secondly... A heartfelt contrition of what that means. A godly sorrow welling up within that you have grieved the Lord. That your sin has put you at enmity with God and that is not okay with you. You don't want that to stay the case. It grieves you that you have sinned against God. And so you want to thirdly confess that sin to God. Repentance is a recognition of and a a coming clean before God who already knows your heart. But to say before God, I agree with you God about my heart. I agree, O Lord, that you have said, I have sinned against you. I see the many sins and iniquities of my life. I confess my sin. And then, repentance involves turning. Turning from that sin to God with a resolve to honor God, not rebel against God, but with a heart oriented to the things of God and not to rebellion in sin. So repentance involves a recognition of sin, a contrition over sin, confession of sin, and a heart turning from sin to God. It is a new path. It is a new direction. And every day we are seeking to look at our feet as disciples of the Lord Jesus, that our feet are continuing to turn to the promises of God and away from a path leading away from God. This is a repenting life. So I think Luther's right. The Christian life is a life oriented to God, which means by necessity, we are not both committed in our heart to sin and committed in our heart to God simultaneously. You cannot serve both. To indulge in rebellion is to walk against God and to walk a foolish path 
Leaning into your sin is a deliberate embrace of what dishonors God and what will destroy you. Don't lean into what destroys you. The shameless pursuit of sin provokes the righteous discipline of the Lord. The psalmist knows this. What we're going to read today is David's reflection on the seriousness of his sin, the need for rescue from God's discipline. In the language of the psalm, we're going to hear David describe his condition in very graphic terms and the longing that he has for deliverance from his sin. And what's clear is David perceives something. David knows that there is a connection between his personal suffering and his sin. We must be careful here, lest we be like Job's friends. Because Job's friends believed as they accused of Job, that if you're going through something difficult and you've experienced some sort of physical or or familial trial, it's because you've done something. There's not always a link in cause and effect between what somebody does and then what they experience as a result. Job's friends thought they could look at effects and reason back to cause. But David knows, in his case, that he's not like Job. Psalm 38 recognizes there can be a connection between one's rebellion against God and what happens in one's life as a result. David is experiencing not a situation of Job's, but a situation where David's iniquities before the Lord must now be something David repents of and calls upon God for mercy in light of. This is in uh, the superscription called a Psalm of David. So once again, an authorship claim of that familiar name we've seen so many times in book one of the Psalms. There is this phrase added to his name, a Psalm of David, and then the phrase, for a memorial offering. An offering of remembrance is something grounded in the book of Leviticus, and he might have in mind all the formal procedures and ritual as part of the ceremony for a memorial offering. It could be that David is not necessarily speaking of a tabernacle sacrifice, Though I do think that option has to be on the table. It could be that God is presenting the, or that uh, David is presenting this psalm as a prayer, as an offering itself unto God. Though coupling together this prayer with an actual sacrifice would not be unheard of, but the very kind of thing a worshiper would do. What's David's motivation here? He wants his prayer to lay his own heart before God that in this psalm, God's remembrance of David would look like mercy. That's what David is praying for. God, would you remember me? This is a memorial offering unto you, O God. In verses 1 to 8, David describes his condition. In each of these parts that we'll look at, verses 1 to 8, then 9 to 14, and 15 to 22, each begin with an appeal to God directly. Notice in verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Section 1 is verses 1 to 8. Verse 9, O Lord... And that extends from verses 9 to 14. In verse 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. One of the ways then we're going to divide this psalm is by looking at each part of the psalm that starts with an appeal. Verses 1 to 8 comes from the first appeal to God, where he describes his condition to the Lord. O Lord, he begins, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This opening verse confirms for us that David is experiencing what he understands to be the chastisement of the Lord. Now God disciplines those he loves. Proverbs teaches this. 
The book of Hebrews confirms this, that the new covenant saints of God experience the fatherly care and correction of God, and that's not always comfortable grace, but sometimes uncomfortable grace at work in our lives to put our feet in the direction they need, to humble us before the Lord and to destroy our pride and our self-exaltation. He prays for the Lord's anger and wrath to abide, to abate. He says, rebuke me not, nor discipline me in your wrath and anger. God is always right in whatever he does. David does not look to God and say, God, why are you doing this? Don't you realize you would be wrong? I'm right here. He prays for God's rebuke and his discipline to end. Though David knows I myself am wrong before the Lord in what I have done. And God is righteous. He explains in verse 2, For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. It's a painful picture. I don't know if you've ever been shot by arrows. I haven't. I bet you haven't. And David here is picking up this graphic picture of arrows sunk into his flesh. That sounds more than just uncomfortable. That's a horrific picture here. He says, your arrows have sunk into me and your hand come down upon me. He's experiencing the physical and circumstantial pressures of life that are painful. He's going through something that is pressure oriented and painful. It doesn't feel good. The circumstances around him are connected outwardly to what is inwardly going on in his heart. The anger and rebuke of the Lord has been righteously exercised upon David. David's Experiencing the hand of the Lord upon him. And the weight is more than David can bear. In verse 3, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. When David describes this here, he's talking about the well-being of his body and the lack thereof at the moment. Soundness in my flesh means a state of things being restored and whole, things going well. He said, there's a lack of soundness in my flesh. And it's because of your indignation. David knows what I'm experiencing is an outworking in my life of what I have been doing dishonoring the Lord. There's no soundness in my flesh. And the reason for that is divine indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Here's David's logic, I think, in verse 3. Why am I experiencing the outward effects of these things in my life? Because I know the Lord's rebuke and righteous indignation. Why is there righteous indignation? You move one piece, of the, uh, one piece uh, back in that direction. Because of my sin. My sin leads to the divine rebuke of the Lord in my life. The divine rebuke of the Lord in my life leads to whatever that is manifested in this time to be. And in verse 3, it's affecting David, not just with godly sorrow or he's convicted of his sin. His very life is experiencing suffering because of his sin. Verse 4 describes how overwhelming it is. For my iniquities have gone over my head and like a heavy burden they are too heavy for me. Verse 4 contains two pictures. Picture number one is a picture of swells of water going over David's head in a way where he was, he's not picturing here uh, the sprinkling of something from a shower head, but the overwhelming torrents of water that are causing him to go under where he's thinking, I'm not going to make it up. 
I can't hold my breath this long. Lord, the iniquities are coming over me and swelling over me with such torrents of grief. And then picture number two here, like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. So it's something that's overwhelming David like a flood. It's more than he can bear. And then the burden is too heavy for him to offload. He sees himself in danger. Friends, our sin never does us any good. Look at the picture here. David sees my iniquities, my rebellion against God, the heavy burdens too great for me to bear. That is the most grievous thing in my life. And God's divine discipline draws attention to the horrific nature of sin. We might be tempted to buck against the divine chastisement of the Lord. But if the chastisement of the Lord is helping drag the deeds of darkness into the light, that's love for his people. That's God loving us. Because praise God, he's not giving us over to our sin. When we experience the divine discipline of the Lord, it might not feel like love because sin confuses the categories. We might think in the short term, sin's going to give us what we want. When the divine chastisement of the Lord is meant to awaken us to the horrific nature of sin and the goodness of God that we are spurning in our rebellion. He says, when I have my wits about me, here's what I realize. My sins are drowning me. That's what they're doing. They're coming over me. I can't, I can't breathe in the toxicity and the poisonous nature of my deeds. And like a heavy burden, I'm going to be crushed by my own sin if something doesn't happen. But David can't pull himself from the mire and the waters. He can't push off of himself the heaviness of the burden of his iniquity. He continues describing it in verse 5. My, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. It's the picture here of not just bodily affliction, but bodily infection. Now, this could be figurative language at this point. I'm not going to go into uh, illustrations here. I'm just going to let our imaginations just uh, take verse 5 and you know, realize how awful this would be. And yet, what's the picture here about sin? Sin is not satisfying. Sin is not sweet. Sin is not something to coddle. Sin is not something to embrace. Sin is poisonous. It is the spiritual stench of rebellion against God. And what David needs is to smell sin's true aroma. And it is nothing desirable. He needs his rebellion against God to be seen for what it is. So that he, in this physical experience, will be oriented spiritually unto God in a renewed way. This is what David needs. He needs to be humbled before the Lord because God is not giving him over to his sin because God loves David. He says in verse 6, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. You know, verses 6 and 7 here are talking about his very physical frame being contorted. He, he said, I, I, I'm not even upright, walking around as if everything is fine. He says, if people looked over at me, they would say, what's going on with David? Is he okay? He's bowed down. He's prostrate before the Lord. He's mourning all day long. His sides are filled with pain. His flesh is not well. He says, I'm feeble and crushed. I groan, in verse 8, because of the tumult of my heart. I think David's point is, What's going on outwardly is an indication in his life 
that something is not well inwardly. It's cluing David in. Verses 1 to 8 is a description of David's condition. Let's get a sense of his weakness and desperation that he lays out in verses 9 to 14. David's weakness and desperation. O Lord, he begins again in an address here to God. O Lord, all my longing is before you. In other words, Lord, my circumstance is not hidden from your sight. You, O Lord, see all that I am. You see all that I'm going through. My sighing, my groans. David's groans might be hidden from other people. He might say, I don't want to groan and cry out with affliction and pain and grief and sorrow where everybody can hear. I might get into a secret place or a private place because I'm still experiencing the shame and the difficulties. But Lord, no matter where I may go, I can't hide my groans from you. They are not hidden from you. My sighing, not hidden from you. My heart, in verse 10, throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also is gone from me. Sin may say to you, go ahead, pursue this route. You'll be fine. But sin will not make you stronger. Sin will destroy you. David is describing here the weakness of his bodily life. And that is to clue him in to the lies of sin. Sin does not make us better. Sin has never improved any aspect of our lives. But oh, the faithfulness of God, the unwavering promises of God, the truth of all of His Word, how foolish and fickle we can be to look at the promises of sin and say, maybe this time it'll be. When over and over again, the Word of God lays out for us God's goodness before us. All the trees of Eden. And Adam and Eve's eyes are drawn to what is prohibited. Looking at this one thing in Genesis 3. In light of all of the bountiful abundance of the goodness of God in which they live. In verse 9 and 10. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. His eyes, the light of my eyes, it's like they're a lamp, the light of which is, is blown out. Or like a candle, and the wick is quenched. David says, my life, my strength, it's like it's being put out right before my eyes. Now in this situation, verse 11 tells us something that is not the ideal. David in this grievous state, would benefit from not being alone and isolated. What's happening instead, though, in verse 11? My friends and companions, and here's what you would hope it would say. My friends and my companions, they know about me. They're concerned about me. They're praying for me. They're encouraging me. They're coming to me. They're trying to help me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. You see, here's, here's David's situation. He's not only experiencing the outworking of his sin physically. There has been relational and social conflict and alienation in his life that is a horrible thing to see in this verse. My friends and companions, far removed. 
even those closest to me, my kin, far off. He says in verse 12, not everybody's far off. Oh, oh, there are some people who see what I'm going through and they see, all right, now's our chance. And in verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and they meditate treachery all day long. There are people who say, we've been looking for an opportunity like this. Here it is. David's at his weakest. Look at him broken down and ailing. No one to help him. We will seize the opportunity now and we will finish him. They lay their snares and they seek David's ruin. In verse 12, the word meditating treachery is meant to recall the blessed man of Psalm 1 who meditates on the law of God day and night. Oh, what polar opposites these people are. In Psalm 1, the wise, the blessed man, his meditations on the law of God day and night. What's in the heart of these people? What do they meditate on? Evil. That's what's in their heart. That's what they're reflecting on. That's what they want to live out. That's what they are planning, and not just individually, but collectively. They are meditating treachery. They see an opportunity to turn against David, to betray David. They're all Judases. They're looking for the opportunity and they think they see it. David has no recourse here from a human perspective. I think that's what verses 13 and 14 that in the second section mean. I think David is saying, there's not a thing I can do. It's as if I'm overwhelmed so much by the torrents of my own iniquities and being crushed by the hand of the Lord that beneath and, and surrounded by and flooded by all of this, I've just become like a deaf man when it comes to everything they're seeking to do. They're meditating treachery, so their words seeking my ruin. They speak of ruin in verse 12, but I'm like a deaf man. It's just, it's just like background noise. I've become kind of numb to it. I, I feel like I can't respond to it. I've become stony in response to it. I don't think it's because David is okay with the way things are going. I think he feels paralyzed by it. Such a set of circumstances, such a degree of being physically distraught. I mean, we know this can be true. Have you ever been so physically distraught that it makes everything else in your life worse as well by by, uh, implication? It's like casting a rock into the water and the ripple effects. You think, this is not only the physical thing I'm dealing with, I'm now dealing with everything else that impacts Here's David saying, all around me, oh God, I need mercy in such a way that's going to deliver me, not only because I'm being crushed by my sins. There are people looking right now, and their plots are coming nearer and nearer. But people who would come to help me, resources and friends, family and and others to my aid, they can't be found. I can't see any of them. So he says, I become like a deaf man, and then I don't hear. And like a mute man who doesn't open his mouth. And David might be thinking, because what's the point? What am I going to say that's going to prevail given the state that I'm in and the opposition against me? And verse 4, I become like a man who doesn't hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. So everybody else is speaking ruin over David's life and David doesn't quite know what to say. That's David's situation. This is such a human moment where David does not know what he should do to try to find in the next step how to deal with what's going on. David knows the only thing he seems to see that can be done is the response of the believer overall anyway. In verses 15 through 22, let's look at David's resolve in prayer. He says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. 
So what's David going to do? His words and his strength is gone. He's looking at his reservoir of what his internal umph level is. And he's like, I don't have any more. I, I, I just don't have the energy and the strength. I don't have the discernment and the strategies to combat everything going on around me and within me. So Lord, if you do not act, so I'm just going to wait. I will wait upon you, O God. Because if you do not act, where is my hope? In verses 15 to 22, this is David's resolve in prayer. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. So here's David saying, O Lord, I don't have any words, so your words have to come. I can't speak anymore. I'm like a mute man. Lord, don't be mute also. I need you to speak. I need you to answer. I need you to act. You feel David's resolve here? He knows I can depend on the Lord. That's something I can do. I can look to the, to the Lord. It's something I can do. His response here is a response of faith. He doesn't want to turn from the Lord. He's seen enough of what that can bring. He's going to look to the Lord. He knows that the best thing our soul can always do day by day and week by week and year by year is have eyes of faith looking to the Lord. He says, for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer and here's what I said in verse 16. Only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. He's praying, in other words, Lord, in some way I can't perceive. Some way I don't understand how it's going to happen. I need you to thwart the plan of the evil ones who've come against me. Because they're looking to rejoice over my destruction. And I'm praying that you not let them rejoice over me. They're looking to prevail God. God, he says, I want you to prevail over them. Let their plans fail, and I need you to prevail over their plans because they boast against me whenever my foot's going to slip. Lord, if I'm not going to slip, it's going to be because of you. If their plans are going to fail, it's going to be because of you. So I'm going to wait for you. In verse 17, because here's my circumstances. He says, for I am ready to fall. It's as if, you just think about uh, legs of a chair or legs of a table. You start cracking at those, you start bending at those, and nails and screws start coming out, and you start removing one leg after another, that chair's not going to be standing for long, that table's not going to be standing for long, long. I think David is saying, the legs of life are being kicked out from under me, and I'm ready to fall. That's where I'm at. So I confess, and my pain is ever before me, in verse 17, the nearness that he feels to being totally undone. So he says in verse 18, I confess my iniquity. Lord, you know my heart, and I want to agree with you about my heart. I've sinned against you. I've not been living to honor you. And if I'm experiencing the divine discipline of the Lord in my life that is bringing attention to the darkness and the deeds of sin, you're showing your love in my heart and life, and I want to turn from sin. I want to confess my iniquity. I'm grieved over it and sorry for it. And then in verse 19, but my foes are vigorous. They're mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. So David's confession of sin is coupled with here his description of the mightiness of his foes. So he wants to confess his sin because he's being crushed under it. His iniquities are like a flood coming over him. So he can confess that. And then the might and strength of his enemies, God's going to have to deal with that too. He needs God to forgive his sin and put down his enemies. That's what verses 18 and 19 are about. 
My sins are too much for me. I confess them, O God. Forgive me, O God. I'm sorry, O God. In verse 19, my foes, they are vigorous and they are mighty. David is contrasting his own weakness with the lack of that weakness in the foes. They're not like David. They seem to be doing great. The wicked people who are coming against David with all their clever snares, they seem to be so strong. And David says, I'm so weak and they are so vigorous. They're mighty. God, you bring down what's mighty. God, the the wicked who seem so invincible in their own eyes, Lord, I know what you can do. You can bring them low. So God, when I'm looking at myself, I'm so weak. When I'm looking at them, they seem so mighty. And many, many are those who hate me wrongfully. David doesn't look at this as a small problem surrounding him. It's a huge problem. There's so many. He's just surrounded by such hostility. It's undoing him. And they don't even hate him for cause. But unrighteously, they hate him. They hate him wrongfully, that's the idea. And David already is showing in this psalm, by the virtue of it being composed, that his heart is turning unto God afresh. He feels his spirit being revived, a resolve to look to God. Oh, that Psalm 38 would be used by God for our hearts this morning. We need this. That we would once again have our steps of life and orientation of heart looking unto God, trusting His promises, turning from sin. And he says, those who render render me evil for good, accuse me because I follow after good in verse 20. You see, you know what's going to happen in David's life? If he's going to follow after good, not everybody's going to love that. If he wants to follow Christ, if he wants to look to the promises of God, if he wants to live for the glory of God, not everybody's going to celebrate that. Some people are going to look at his pursuit of good and they're going to treat him poorly because of it. They're going to mock him and they're going to scorn him and that's going to be the case for our lives. We have to be willing to be reviled for the name of Christ. If we're going to live and seek to pursue the Lord as long as everybody likes us and as long as the world approves, we need to hear the words of Jesus. When the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The darkness hates the light. It's not neutral toward the light. There's an enmity, a hostility. And David says, those who render me evil for good. In other words, if I'm seeking to do what is righteous, seeking to pursue the Lord, it's not always return this this, uh, sowing of good from them. Instead, it's evil. Evil to me. And they accuse me because I follow after good. Think of Joseph accused by others wrongfully in Genesis. Or Daniel accused by others wrongly in the book of Daniel. The psalmist here knows that this is not just a unique experience among people who want to follow the Lord. So he says, in verses 21 and 22, Lord, if these people are turning against me, Lord, don't turn against me yourself. Don't forsake me. If they're going to forsake me and they're going to render me evil for good, they're going to accuse me because I follow after good, Lord, what I need is the nearness of your presence. I need your goodness. I need your favor and blessing upon my life. I need your life and wisdom at work in me. Don't forsake me, O Lord. O my Lord God, be not far from me. This is the same kind of language where earlier he said his friends were standing aloof. His kin was far away. He says, Lord, I need you to be near because nobody else seems to be. And this is the one David needs most near to him. The most help we get in this life is from the one who knows us most and loves us most. It is the Lord. 
He says in verse 21, don't forsake me, Lord, because what good would it be if all of the friends and family of David were for him and David was living in rebellion against the Lord? The one he needs to not forsake him is the Lord. The one he needs to be near is the Lord. So he says, don't be far from me. These are negative ways of saying in verse 21 of what he's going to state positively in verse 22. Same ideas. Don't forsake me, don't be far from me means this in verse 22. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is who David believes God is. Who is God to David, surrounded by enemies, crushed inwardly by sins, with no soundness in his flesh? God is David's deliverance. That's who he is. He knows who God is. He knows that he himself has sin. He knows that he himself needs to confess sin and turn from sin. But the reason he's saying this to God is because he knows who God is in those predicaments. God is his salvation. Make haste. There's an urgency there. To help me. David knows what he needs. Oh Lord, he knows who to go to. God, my salvation. He needs an urgency. Clear in his own heart and we need it in ours. Friend, today is the day of salvation. Do you sense an urgency like David does upon our own lives when we look at the circumstances around us, the things that plague our lives? We can't always discern a a direct connection between personal suffering and, and personal sin. But we can look at Psalm 38 and even pray afresh, Oh Lord, search my heart. Search my heart and my mind. Make it clear before me, O God, that I might turn from sin if I'm harboring iniquity in my life. If I'm turning from what is good and pursuing what is foolish, O God, may today be a day of renewal in my life. A day of fresh sight to the glory of God as you can use Psalm 38, O Lord, to to help me to see once again your love for me as your child, the poisonous nature of sin in my life, You see, the Lord Jesus, in chapter 38 here of the psalm, is likely in a scene in the Gospels alluding to this psalm. There's a moment in Luke's Gospel where we're told in verse 2349 that Jesus is hanging upon the cross and those that had been closest to him were standing far away and aloof. So New Testament commentators will say, That Psalm 38 and verse 11 is likely alluded to in the Gospel of Luke. Where the Gospel writer takes a moment to tell you, not of about David, but about the son of David. And that the son of David, like his ancestor, is experiencing the judgment of God. And those nearest to him are far away. And he cries out, my God, my God, do not forsake me. Jesus upon the cross is not dying for sins of his own. The Lord Jesus is without sin. He's born of the Virgin Mary and lives overcoming all temptation. There is never an experience of the life of Jesus where he experiences the discipline and chastisement of God because of iniquity. But here's how the words of the psalm apply on the cross for the Lord Jesus. I think the Lord Jesus can say... Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me. 
and there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation and no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head and like a heavy burden too heavy for me. How can the one without sin say that? Because 2 Corinthians tells us that the one who had no sin became sin in our place. So when the Lord Jesus speaks about the sin upon his head for which he is suffering and undergoing judgment, it is our iniquities. It is the chastisement upon the substitute. The one who is satisfying the wrath of God, which is not being poured out upon us, who will come then by faith to receive the mercy from Christ. In other words, Psalm 38 is most powerfully outworked in the life of the Lord Jesus who takes upon himself the flood of our iniquities and the great burden of our sin because he alone can bear it and rise from the dead. So what we need is to look at Psalm 38, to realize we have sinned against the Lord, to be contrite and humbled because of our sin and the greatness of the mercy of God, to confess our sin to the Lord and experience his renewing spirit-empowered work, that in our weakness He shows Himself strong, that in our unfaithfulness He did not cast us aside, but He held us, and He kept us, and He's near to us, even this hour, with the strength and the help that we need. And it's grounded in the mighty cross of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.